I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Welcome to Great Speeches and Interviews on Axis Sacramento and The Voice. I'm Steve Lerman. Today's program is The Overpopulation Crisis. Alan Weissman talks with Francesca Riannon about the overpopulation crisis and how we can solve it. The Earth's population is expected to be somewhere around 11 billion people by the end of this century. Alan says overpopulation already underlies much of the conflict we see in the world today, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in Pakistan. Diffusing the population bomb. One of the things that we can do the fastest that would actually have the most significant effect on the human impact on the planet would be to start to manage the numbers of us who are on the planet. It's something that is actually turns out to be culturally acceptable throughout much of the world, which I had to travel through much of the world to discover for this book. But... Uh, Ultimately, you know, to me, this is a book whose time has really come. That's journalist Alan Weissman. We spend the hour with him talking about his important and riveting new book, Countdown. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. The population bomb is already exploding, and it underlies much of the conflict we see in the world today, from Israel and Palestine to Pakistan to China's increasing aggression in the Pacific. If current trends continue, by the end of this century, the Earth's population will be somewhere around 11 billion people. My guest this hour, journalist Alan Weissman, says that means we're going to have to produce more food in the next 50 years than has been consumed in all of human history. But here's the thing. Scientists estimate our planet's carrying capacity is only about 2 billion people. And arable land, water, fertilizer, and topsoil are all shrinking. Global warming is cutting food production further. Each degree of warming is estimated to cut it by 10%. And we're headed straight for 4 to 5 degrees of global temperature rise. And just to close the circle, overpopulation is a major, perhaps the major, contributor to climate change. In his terrific new book, Countdown, Alan Weissman says either we volunteer to bring our global birth rate down or nature will do it much more painfully for us. That may sound hard to do, but Weissman lays out a convincing argument that it isn't. 
In fact, could family planning be, as the subtitle of Countdown asks, our last best hope for a future on Earth? Weissman traveled all over the globe to find the answer, and what he discovered might surprise you. Religious extremism is not always the barrier, we think, and family planning is popular, especially when paired with cheap contraception and education of girls. Weissman says we know how to do this. It's not expensive, and our survival depends on it. We last spoke with Alan Weissman about his New York Times bestseller, The World Without Us. He's also author of three other books and has written for Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, Discover, and Orion, among others. Alan Weissman, welcome to Writer's Voice. Well, thank you very much. The last time we spoke, we, we talked about your book, The World Without Us, a wonderful thought experiment about what would happen if we suddenly all human beings just vanished from the planet. And at the very end of that book, you mention the issue of overpopulation. And uh, I questioned you at that time. I said, this seems to be, you know, in some ways, the most important question that you've asked. How come you didn't do more about it? And at that time, you said that you felt people weren't quite ready to hear the message that you now do bring in this wonderful book, Countdown. Um, Do you think people are more ready now to hear that we need to limit our population? Well, I think uh, in the uh, six years since The World Without Us came out, uh, the whole world has had an education. We're starting to see visible signs of how the, the ecosystem that supports human life is bursting at the seams. And uh, there are very few people who aren't taking climate change, for example, seriously anymore. And uh, people are going beyond that. They're beginning to realize that the same forces that are changing the climate are changing literally the chemistry of the seas from which we all spring, including all of our food chain. Uh, We're talking about serious business now. And I decided to write this book uh, for a number of reasons, but a big one was is that one of the things that we can do the fastest that would actually have the most significant effect on the human impact on the planet would be to start to manage the numbers of us who are on the planet. It's something that actually turns out to be culturally acceptable throughout much of the world, which I had to travel through much of the world to discover for this book. But uh, ultimately, you know, to me, this is a book whose time has really come. Yeah, and hopefully it's one that we can take the lesson from. I mean, I'm surprised that you say that that you found that it was a point that was acceptable in much of the world because I think most people would think that, you know, with all the fights over abortion in this country, for example, I mean, there's even, uh, you know, uh, the right wing is trying to control the access to contraception, uh, much less abortion. There are places in the world where the birth rate is extremely high and you visited them. You went to Israel and Palestine first, some of the highest birth rates in the world in those two countries. Talk about what drives both population expansion and what drives its control in our globe at this time. Absolutely. Let's talk about that, but I want to make sure that we leave some time to get back to your original question about cultural uh, acceptance of the opposite of uncontrolled population growth. What drives population growth Two things, really. More people are born than die, and people live longer. Now, to 
understand that, we have to realize that through 99% of human history, the human population grew very, very little on this planet. I mean, it, was, it barely, barely crept up from a flat line. And that's because people were dying about as fast as people were being born. I mean, it's, it must have been incredibly painful for our ancestors, but until about 200 years ago, uh, most babies didn't make it to their fifth birthday. And human life expectancy was about 40 years. Now, starting, I think, in 1798 with a vaccine for smallpox, we started turning the corner on mortality. Uh, We invented more vaccines, pasteurization of milk, an understanding of antiseptics and of cleanliness in, in hospitals, and we brought infant mortality way down, so a lot more babies were surviving and people were living longer. And then the second thing, even bigger than modern medical technology, in the 20th century, we did two things that enormously increased the amount of food on this planet. First, probably the most influential human invention of any was something called the Haber-Bosch process. That's not a familiar name to people for the most important invention. But what it was was a way to pull nitrogen out of the air and chemically apply it to soils. Before that, the amount of plant life on the planet was literally limited to the nitrogen contribution of a few plants who host um, bacteria on their roots that can naturally fix nitrogen. But now we could do it. And then that, you know, that took place right before World War One. got commercialized uh, in the 1930s, and about three decades later came what is known as the Green Revolution. Uh, that was a way of enhancing the yields of grains wheat and rice and also to a certain extent corn by being able to grow many more grain kernels per plant than ever before through some very deft genetic selection. As a result, in the 1970s, some famines that were widely predicted and most famously by the authors of the population bomb, uh, Paul and Ann Ehrlich, who were echoing the predictions of uh, population growth always outstripping food production that uh, Robert Malthus famously made back before there were even a billion people on the planet. They predicted that the way population was growing, you know, as a result of the the medical and um, agricultural technology, our population actually doubled and then doubled again in the 20th century. But by the 70s, they didn't expect that to happen. However, the Green Revolution is widely touted as having refuted Malthus and the Ehrlichs because the places that, that were, where it was tried out first, India and Pakistan, didn't have those famines. But let's look at those countries today, which I did. I went and there were two of the 21 countries I visited for this book. India is about to surpass China as the most populous nation on earth, and that's simply because people who didn't die of famine lived to beget more people, children, who then also grew up to beget more people. Pakistan is Pakistan is really one of the scariest places I've ever worked in 60-some countries I've worked, worked in as a journalist. There are 185 million people right now in Pakistan, uh, and this is a country that's about the size of Texas, which has 26 million people. And by the middle of the century, if it keeps growing the way it's growing, it's going to have 
nearly 400 million people. Now, that's a lot more than the entire United States has, and it'll still be the size of Texas. So it's going out of control, and the country's filled with youth who the economy cannot employ because there are just too many of them, so they get frustrated, they get angry, and they become what we oftentimes call terrorists in this country. And Pakistan's also a nuclear power. I mean, this is a country, when I was there, there was just mayhem in the streets every single day to the people that I went to interview who were ecologists who were trying to save mangrove forests around Karachi's harbor were found tortured and floating in the lagoon the night before, killed by a timber mafia. It's just completely beyond control at the moment. And it's as good an example of any uh, that I know of what President Dwight D. Eisenhower and that was a pretty conservative president, warned back in 1958 that the biggest threat to global security in the post-war era was going to be overpopulation. Please welcome Hillary Rodham Clinton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am Hillary Rodham Clinton, and gosh, I'm just delighted. <laughs> And really happy to be here to honor President-elect Barack. Oh, who am I kidding, people? It should have been me, my, mine. This was my year. <laughs> that being said, um, please help me welcome the next president of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> Hillary, thank you for that uh, enthusiastic introduction. And welcome to my administration. I hope you're happy with your new position. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Sorry, I heard somebody say something about a new position. <laughs> so, uh, why wasn't I told about this? <laughs> No, Bill, honey, what Barack is saying is that since he gets to be the next president of the United States, I should be happy to be what so many women before me have been, a secretary. <laughs> well, look, since we got the three of us here, I know it's not the, the good kind of a three-way, <laughs> but perhaps we can all put our heads together. You know, we can do things for the good of the party. Go. And ovaries is the ticket to liberals' destiny. Just like berry bombs, doctor, yes, sir, we've got chemistry. Hell, you know, some folks think he's untested wherever he goes. He could use your help and your expertise to get things done. From day one in the new White House I could run things somehow Like Condi does now Bill, you did campaign for me Is there some way to thank you personally? Just as long as you send her on a trip that's overseas <laughs> What could possibly go wrong now? I guess we soon will see 
And now, back to the overpopulation crisis with Alan Weissman and Francesca Riannon. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Alan Weissman about his latest book, Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for Our Future on Earth. It's a very scary example. And this brings us, I guess, back to the question I asked about culture and religion, because one of the greatest barriers in Pakistan is, in fact, uh, religion, barriers to to bringing down population. Talk about how that works out there, and, and, and then maybe loop back also to Israel and Palestine, because I think that's also a very important example where you have two populations that are uh, set against each other, Orthodox, Orthodox Jews who are driving a very right-wing agenda and and Palestinians who, you know, are both, there's a whole, the demographic bomb that they talk about. Well, let me start right there and, and then I'll, I'll move back to, to the religious issue in Muslim countries that, that, that you've raised. You know, I start the book right there because, you know, the Holy Land kind of hits us all in the gut. Most of the people on earth, be they Christian, Jews, or Muslims, you know, consider this to be, to be hallowed ground. And to show that you've got two populations there, each claiming it, and trying to outpopulate each other to be the majority in the land is incredibly senseless. And yet when we think about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we never really hear about this. We also don't hear about the related concept that Israel's always being blamed, and correctly so, for holding on to these settlements in the West Bank. Well, there's a reason that just doesn't get explained very often, is that this is a country where there's not an awful lot of fresh water. The major aquifer runs mainly through the West Bank, and you know, those settlements are all on top of wells. That's why they don't want to give them up. Uh, back before the state of Israel was created, uh, it was under British mandate, and British ecologists uh, determined that, uh, or calculated that the carrying capacity of the land was about two and a half million people. And the pioneer um, Zionist who became the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, argued that Jewish ingenuity could make the desert bloom, and he thought that it could have even more than twice that number. He thought that the land could hold six million people. Well, today there are nearly 12 million between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and by mid-century it'll be 21 million, and it's running out of water. Israel has um, has desalinization plants that are running nonstop, and, and they create more kosher sea salt than you can sell out there on the market, and you can't dump it back into the ocean because it disrupts coastal ecology. So we're really looking at one of the prime examples on the planet of how too much of a good thing gets to be really too much. Now, I think that that's more of a political than a religious battle, even though you know we famously associate you know, the Holy Land with, with religion, because you know you go back to Genesis and you see these peoples who are all trying to hold on to wells, and they were fighting each other even back then. There's a great example, though, in my book that was given to me by a Talmudic scholar of one of the ways where culture, in which I found in cultures all over the world, gives us the options, you know, within our religions without having to tell people your beliefs are wrong, you have to believe somebody else's beliefs to get it right. In the Judeo-Christian Bible in Genesis, you know, first we're having everybody being fruitful and multiply, trying to fill the land. You know, that's a strategy to be the most powerful group around so you don't get usurped by your nations. So 
for the same reason that Mormons were polygamists many years later, you know, the early Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all polygamists trying to have as many children to fill the land. But then we come down to one of Jacob's 13 children, Joseph, who I think may have been history's first recorded ecologist because he was very observant and he saw that we were entering a time of scarcity. And he had only one wife and two children and he counseled the Egyptian pharaoh and then the Israelites that this is not a time to keep expanding. This is a time for, for conserving if they want to save themselves. And I think that this is sort of the situation that we have in the world right now. Every religion has something in it, usually some very prescient words. Uh, in the Quran, Muhammad talks about the necessity of the stewardship of the planet and how that is a responsibility of everyone. And I go to several countries that have successfully found ways to take control of their population uh, and to bring it down towards sustainable growth rates, even negative growth rates, because they have grown beyond sustainability. And the most famous example that comes to everybody's mind is China's one-shot policy, and nearly nobody likes it, including most of the Chinese. Nobody wants governments telling us what to do in our bedrooms, telling us to control what is basically a natural act, make it, making copies of ourselves. But several countries have come up with ways of persuading people to decide for themselves voluntarily that they're going to be better off having fewer children and their children are going to be better off. And at least three of these countries are Muslim countries. I have a chapter set in the U.K., uh, and another one in Italy, and of course there's widespread fears all over Europe uh, from fear-mongering that has been promoted all over the Internet that all of Europe is going to become a Muslim nation because all these immigrants are proliferating like bunnies and they're going to just take everything over. And of course these are wildly inflated claims. The, the, the numbers are are single-digit percentages of the number of Muslims that we can that we're going to see in the next 50 years in Europe. But nobody really pays attention to the fact, and, and I have a whole chapter devoted to a very unlikely country, at least in the minds of my fellow Americans here, uh, of a country that has done a beautiful job of bringing its population uh, growth rate down uh, faster than anyone ever in history, including faster than the Chinese, and that's Iran. Iran, yes. How did they bring, uh, how did that happen? And I mean, Iran is a, a Muslim theocracy, basically, where women are controlled to a certain degree, although not as much as I think a lot of people may think in, in comparison to other uh, Muslim countries. But how did it happen in Iran? Well, after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, before the country barely had a chance to start organizing itself, they were attacked by Iraq. Saddam Hussein uh, had his eye on an oil-rich province on their border, much as he would, ten years later, do the same in Kuwait. He invaded, figuring that this was a time when disorganized Iran couldn't defend it. And back then, Saddam Hussein had the backing of NATO. He had sophisticated weaponry from NATO, and he was being provided with the components of nerve gas, which he'd already used against his, you know, his Kurdish um, minority, and he employed against Iran. Iran just basically had bodies. So the Ayatollah Khomeini asked every 
Iranian woman who could get pregnant to do so, do her patriotic duty and help build a 20 million man army to fight off the invaders. And, you know, for eight years they held Iraq to a stalemate. Finally, when a truce was brokered, the economist who was planning and budget director for Iran realized that they were going to have a terrible problem within 10, 15 years. These kids were all going to grow up and they were going to need employment. And he warned the Ayatollah that their economy would be nowhere uh, able to provide jobs for so many people and that it, this, was, uh, this was going to be a huge destabilizing factor in Iranian society. I mean, he basically was describing Pakistan today. Nighttime comes and everybody wonders Will tomorrow bring the light of day? Will our house be rubble-blown asunder? In the cellar we will hide ourselves and pray. Will the smoke clear in the morning? Will the city all go down in flames? Will the factory be standing? Will life here ever be the same? There's terror in the skies of this city. Fear is in the hearts of children, women, and men And you never see the faces of the killers As the smart bombs fall again Will there be a job for me to go to? Will there be food upon my plate? After so many years of hungry sanctions What did my child do to earn this fate? There's terror in the skies of this city Fear is in the hearts of children, women, and men And you never see the faces of the killers As the smart bombs fall again talk of Gaza and of Algiers They wring their hands when Irish shoppers die But if you want to know a life of terror Look up at night into the Baghdad sky There's terror in the skies of this city Fear is in the hearts of children, women, and men And you never see the faces of the killers As the smart bombs fall again And now, messages from Access Sacramento. 